Swing Low, written by Wallace Willis in the late 1800s, made more popular by the 1900s by a group of African-American singers called the Fisk Jubilee Singers. This song has been around for a while, and it's transcended genre. It's been sung by Dolly Parton. It's been sung by Johnny Cash. It's been sung by Alicia Keys. And the reason people sing this song is because of the themes in the song. The song is a bit of a retelling, emphasizing on certain parts of the story of Elijah. Now, Elijah is my personal favorite Bible character. I even named my son Elias after him. The story of Elijah is of a prophet who is taken from earth. A chariot swings low and carries him to heaven. Themes of hope, that's why this song was sung. But see, the, the singers of this song, African-American slaves, actually sung it for multiple reasons. One of the other reasons was that it was a bit of a code. It was hidden language. See, the idea of swinging low was a reference to the fact that Harriet Tubman, a woman who was known for helping slaves escape the South via the Underground Railroad, would be close. And so... African-American slaves would sing this as a way of communicating to one another without letting their oppressors know that there was a chance that they could escape to rest that very night. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for the carry me home. You can see that this song is pretty weighty. It's pretty powerful lyrics, both to the singer and to those listening. A song speaking of hope, of a future peace, of a future rest for people, coming forward to carry me home. In these lyrics, home is not just the place you go to rest, to sleep, to lay your head down. No, home is a place that is providing you freedom from conflict, freedom from oppression, freedom from death and pain. It's a place of actual rest. See, this is a song that was sung by people done wrong, but unbroken. By the land they lived in, weary from the oppression of their circumstances, but still pointing their hope towards a future rest from their oppressors, towards a future restoration of their dignity. This was a song of rest for the restless, a song for all of those who were truly weary. The second song we look at over this Advent series comes from a guy who uh, sings it, but ironically enough, a few seconds before had been mute for a long time. He's a well-educated man. Uh, he's grown up knowing the scriptures uh, extensively. An older man who's been serving God his whole life, which would have mean that he would have witnessed the deterioration of his homeland while waiting for God to fulfill a promise. He's a man of God from the tribe of Levi. He's a priest wrestling with the tensions of seeing his people suffer for so long. He would have known the promises that one day a Messiah would come and rescue them, but he hadn't seen it yet. This man was Zechariah, the priest. See, Zechariah wasn't a marginalized individual. He wasn't on the outskirts of society. He would have been someone that would have been seen as a bit more of a prestigious fellow, had a sense of honor. 
But yet he too felt the same oppression that people like Mary that we talked about last week would have been feeling and singing about. The first story we get of Zechariah is of him doubting the word of God. Which is odd because I guess when I think about it, you know, Zechariah is a priest. I was thinking through this yesterday. I'm like, man, if I were a priest and I'd been serving God for a long time and it's like, ooh, your name gets to be in the Bible and the story's going to be written about you, I would hope it would be about something other than my doubt. But this is Zechariah's case. See, Zechariah is a, in a bit of a predicament. He's an older guy. And, and he and his wife are without child. I mean, they've been wanting a child for a while. But there's been this prayer and these prayers and these prayers, and God has done nothing. He has failed to act. It's like God has been silent. So one day, Zechariah goes to fulfill his priestly duties of lighting incense in the holiest place in the temple. And an angel appears to him and says, Zechariah, good news. You and your wife are going to have a kid. God has heard your prayers, which should be rejoicing news. But Zechariah is any, you know, critical thinking, rational individual. His first thought is, I'm a bit old. You know, like, you know, if you're later down the road, that's probably not what you're thinking is about having a kid when you're in your 70s, 80s, or 90s. That's the space that Zechariah is in. And an angel says you're going to have a kid. He's first thinking, yeah, that's probably not possible, mate. It puts him in this position of doubt. Because he's been praying for so long, waiting for God to answer this prayer, and it hasn't happened. He's probably reflecting, thinking, man, God, if you really wanted to step in and do a miracle, why didn't you hit me up in my 30s and 40s? That would have been the perfect time for you to show up and do a miracle. See, this is a prayer that's been unanswered, much like the bigger prayer that him and his people have been praying for salvation while they remained under a deeply oppressive system. See, Zechariah's faith was weary. He was tired. And, and that happens to us sometimes, too. We, too, get tired. We, too, get weary. Sometimes faith is a thing of endurance, and our circumstances can impact our stamina. This was the case for Zechariah. Neither him nor his father or his father's father's generations before had been waiting for a while for this promise to be fulfilled, for God to act on their behalf, and nothing had happened yet. And so in his little altercation with the angel, the angel makes a bit of an example out of him. The angel takes away his ability to speak for the next nine months, and Zechariah would sit and would have to think and process for a bit. And, and, you know, what the angel says comes true. His wife, Elizabeth, is pregnant, has a child. And they're all wondering, what are you going to name the baby? What are you going to name the baby? And Elizabeth is like, oh, we'll name him John. And they look at Zechariah thinking, that surely can't be the name. Why John? And so they look at Zechariah and they're like, what are you going to name him? And he writes it down. And to their surprise, when he holds up the sheet of paper, it says John. And immediately his voice comes back. And the first thing he does a bit different than when he was doubting. The last time he spoke, he was doubting the angel's word. This time, as his voice comes back, we look at Luke 1, 67, and he says this. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation 
in the house of his servant David, as he said he would through the prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hands of all those who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our fathers Abraham, to rescue us from the hands of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. See, this is the first thing that comes out of Zechariah after nine months of stewing. Within this song, I believe there's some pretty compelling truths that show us a couple of things about rest, you know, about how we can be at rest in this current moment, regardless of what's going on, and how we can find rest, where to look, where to turn our eyes if we are in need of rest. And I would think this is pretty relevant to a lot of us. You know, the past couple of years in Hong Kong hasn't been the most restful. When you, when you do your reflection back on the year in a couple of weeks around New Year's Eve and you're celebrating, and someone asks you how their year's going, my guess is that I doubt you'll say, it's just been a real restful year. And so this passage has something to show each of us about what rest looks like because we long for rest. We were made to live within that shalom and that wholeness that God offers us. And Zechariah, after not speaking for months, still in this system, nothing has changed about the big picture. Let's, let's, let's get that straight. He, it's not like nine months later, all of a sudden, all the oppression is just gone. No, nine months later, his baby has come, and the, the, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, fills him, and he sings that God has come. He sings that there is rest. And I think as we look into this, we can find for ourselves what rest looks like and how we can enter into it. So Zechariah's song opens with praises. He praises God because he has come. And that's, I mean, that's what this whole season's all about, Right? Like, God has come to his people. That's the whole idea of Advent, the waiting for God to come. And Zechariah opens his mouth and says, God has come. Just nine months ago, Zechariah was doubting that God would do the very thing he promised to do. And that was a bit of a smaller thing compared to the bigger scale picture. He was doubting the words of the angel, but now Zechariah is saying, God has come. God is here. Hallelujah, he's here. Like, this has been 1,600 years of prophecy unfulfilled, of people desperately longing for some type of salvation, for God to come and to save them from their oppression. And Zechariah is saying, God is here. We look at the verse again, and, and he said, through his prophets, holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. See, this was a bit of an old, old promise, an old covenant made a long time ago. Many have come, many have passed, and it's not happened yet. And we've all been in that position as well where something was promised a while ago. And we've been waiting and we've been waiting and we find ourselves, it's been so long that we doubt that the promise was even made, more or less, that it would ever come through. This would be the state of the, the audience that Zechariah would be singing and prophesying to. The Jewish people, that's where they would be. So in Zechariah's first line that God has come, he's actually offering them his first way of finding rest. And what is that rest, you might ask? It's this, we can rest assured that God has remembered his promise. 
I mean, we just sang that, right? The promise still stands. No mountain, no, uh, no walls, like the promise still stands. Advent is our reminder of a God who has heard his people, who has been faithful to his word, who doesn't say one thing and does another, but a God who remembers his promise. He hadn't forgotten about his people. And this is funny. This is like the second time this has happened. See, if we look back in Scripture, we look at the Exodus story, these people are under oppression for 400 years underneath a deeply oppressive system, similar to the way that they are in the first century. And, and they think God hasn't heard them, but he breaks into their silence, and he sends them Moses to rescue them. But this time it'd be a little different. God's not sending Moses. He's not sending an Elijah. No, God himself is coming into the brokenness, into the systems of oppression, into our darkness to be with us. And today we can rest assured because our God keeps his promise. His promise still stands. His words are still true today. We think about how, for a lot of us, a promise can feel conditional. When we make a, a, a promise to someone or we say we'll do something, it's depending on, well, in the next eight years or over this period of time. This promise was made 1,600 years previous. The state of the people of Israel had changed. They had gone from being a nation that was following God, and God kept his promise, to being a nation that fell into idolatry, but yet God still keeps his promise. A nation that was given God's presence in the Ark of the Covenant and lost it in their unfaithfulness, but God chooses to still keep his promise. A nation that had been unfaithful, following after God, placing their faith in other things, in themselves, and God chooses to be faithful. A nation under foreign occupation and the people are losing hope about whether God hears them, doubting if he's even there, just going through the rhythms and the routines without meaning any of it, and God keeps his promise. There's something to hold on to here. God will keep his promise. He keeps his word independent of how we failed, doubted, or forgotten him. That's just the God we serve. He's consistent. He's not going to waver. If he says yes, it'll be yes. And I know, God is looking for us, yes, to be people who desire to live a faithful Christian life committed to him. But the reality is we will have those moments of doubt. We will have those moments where we fall short. And how we can be at rest is to know that God isn't changing in that time. His promise still stands. He still keeps his promise. And if God could keep his promise to a broken nation that has strayed so far from where they once were, that had, that had lost their knowledge of him, had lost their spark, if he could keep his promise and come into that space and be with that people, then there's no situation that you're in. There's no darkness that you're in. There's no shame that you can carry that's too shameful. There's no hurt beyond what he can step into. If he can enter a nation that would barely recognize him, he can step into your space today. He's come for the righteous, for the sinners. He's come for those who believe. And he's faithful to those who don't yet believe. This is why Zechariah is singing and rejoicing, because you can find rest in this. 
You don't have to worry about, is God going to change his mind on me? Is God still going to love me? Is God still God? He is faithful. He keeps his promise. He keeps his word. And that is why Zacharias sings, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his, prop, to his people and redeemed them. God has kept his promise. Zechariah continues after explaining that God is worthy of praise because he keeps his word no matter what happens. God keeps his word. He continues and lays out a second understanding of what rest could look like. Rest based off of the understanding that God has this mission that is massive. And when you understand the mission of God, what he's up to in the world, it can bring you to rest. And it reads like this, salvation from our enemies from the hand of all those who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors, to remember his holy covenant, uh, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us, to rescue us from the hands of our enemies. God's agenda is about saving people. It's about rescuing a lost people, a people in need of hope and in need of rest. See, this idea of salvation is a loaded complex topic. Pastor Andrew broke into it last week when he looked at Mary's song of salvation. But you have to understand, like he said, salvation to the Jews isn't, their first century Jewish people aren't thinking about the cross and eternity. They're actually just thinking about right now. Like we need salvation from this. This moment is hard. We need salvation from here. Salvation from our enemies. That was a package deal that came with some sensitive and deep expectations because the people had real enemies. They had been taken over by the Babylonians and destroyed, taken over by the Persians and exiled, now under foreign occupation by the Romans. They had needs. They needed saving. And they'd been crying out for years. And so it's because of this reason they would start to see their salvation to mean the removal of the present struggle that I'm in. The current issue, that's what God's salvation. When they would hear this, they would think salvation means this. But actually, the angel would mean something a little different. And it's critical that we don't miss this. God's salvation has a bigger impact on our eternal condition than just the removal of our present trouble. I'm going to say that one more time. God's salvation has a bigger impact on your eternal condition than just the removal of your current struggle. That's the salvation Zechariah is singing about. Salvation of the spiritual type. Salvation through the removal of the threat that anything or anyone can ever pose on you and make you prisoner to or subject to. That salvation is, is the eternal rest. It's a long-term thing. God has kept his promise, and he offers us that salvation, changing the trajectory of you and my eternity, playing the long game, putting us in position to choose an eternity of rest with him, of shalom, which means we're able to navigate through the situations we're in currently. See, we can, we can work through just about anything, just about anything, when we know that we've been saved and that there is an eternal rest for us. When we know how the book ends, we read it more confidently. And the story ends. What salvation would mean is that the story ends with God rescuing us forever and us being with him in that type of eternal rest.
See, God brings about his salvation, affecting the condition of the soul, shifting humanity's eternal position and restoring us back to him. God's salvation isn't temporary, but our temporary current struggles are. And that's something to really think about. The salvation he's offering us through this isn't going to burn out, isn't going to stop working, isn't going to grow old, isn't going to fail and wither. But the current tensions that we sit in, the current struggles of today, may only last today, may only last this year. See, God, God's salvation changes our perspective on what's eternal and what's not. His salvation makes sure that our eternity can be filled with rest. It's an eternity of restoration, an eternity of shalom. That eternity is promised to us, and it's something like this, where our tears are wiped away, where there's no more shame, where no more weeping, no more sorrow, no more death, where we're no longer striving, where we're no longer thwarted by our enemies, to where fear and death can no longer alter who we're called and who we're meant to be. This is the eternal rest that God's mission, God's salvation is speaking to. This is what Zechariah is singing about. And Advent, this season that we're in, is the starting point. It's when God steps into the world and begins his plan of salvation. It's where the rubber would meet the road. And I think it's seeing this and understanding this that Zechariah is possessed with song to where as soon as he gets a chance to, he sings praises to God because God has come to rescue us, to bring us salvation. Regardless of our trouble, God comes and he offers you and me a salvation that goes beyond just today, goes beyond just the temporary obstacles that we can see, a salvation that covers all. He comes to offer us an eternal rest. Zechariah wraps up his, his passage, his song, his singing, by hitting on a really big topic about rest which kind of is a bit of the, the, the big story of Scripture. From both Genesis all the way to Revelation, we see this concept woven in between the stories and the principles and the precepts. The very last line of this passage says this, to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Without fear. It's a beautiful condition and a hard thing for us to step into. See, for all of human history, from Genesis 3 onward, there's been this continual pursuit to regain what was lost. And what was lost? It was a space where humanity could live without fear, could live full and live whole. That was the Garden of Eden, a state of all perfect harmony. And it's promised again in Revelation chapter 22, we see Eden restored so that all of us, all of creation can enter once again into this rest that comes without fear. The people of God would spend the majority of their time chasing after this. 
a rest that looks like a freedom from their enemies, a restoration and a peace. And I think it's because rest looks like the existence, uh, our existence without fear, it makes it really easy for the people to see what Zechariah is thinking talking about and to see that the only way that's possible is if they were in a specific situation or if things looked a certain way. For them, if they were in their land with no oppressors and they had no reason to be afraid. So they started seeing rest based off of their land, based off of their circumstance. Their rest had become dependent on things going a certain way, on the stability of their land, on the way that their country was set up, on what they deemed necessary to actually enter into rest. All the while, God is promising to send a Messiah who's going to come and set the captives free. But in their situation, they still have all this oppression. So how can they be at rest? The people were looking for God to come and shift a geopolitical landscape. They were looking for him to come and change the settings and the conditions of their land. God was actually coming to change the settings and the conditions of their heart. See, it's, they were looking in the wrong place. They were missing it. And I think we, too, can find ourselves weary and exhausted and restless when we spend our time looking for a good thing, looking for the right thing, but in the wrong place. See, yesterday I went on a walk, like pastors do, and took my notes with me, and I was going to read through my sermon, prepare, internalize it, And in order for that to happen, I knew I needed a couple of things. The first thing I needed was my fanny pack. So I clipped on my Nike fanny pack, getting ready to step out the door. Had my my AirPods in my fanny pack so I could listen to some music. Then I had my camera. I actually don't know why I had my camera. I just felt like I needed to take it with me. So I'm walking out the door. I get to the lift, press the button, go out, start walking. I live in Chinquana, so there's a beautiful little harbor front area. I'm walking by the promenade. It's great. And I'm getting ready to get into the zone to read this sermon and really, like, hear from God. I'm like, you know what I need? I need some good preacher music, some good Jesus worship music. So I'm like, all right, let me get my headphones out. So I open my fanny pack, pull out my little white case of my my AirPods, and it's empty. It's not really how the story was supposed to go. Um, So I'm like, okay, fine. It must be in my pocket. Because I do make that mistake every so often. I put something where it doesn't belong. My wife gets on to me quite a lot about it, and she's right. And this was a great example of it. So I'm like, you know what? If it's not in my AirPods, maybe it's in my my pocket. So I start searching my pocket, searching my back pockets. I have a jacket on, so I'm searching that pocket. That has another pocket inside. I'm searching every possible pocket that's available. And there's no AirPods in them. And I'm starting to get pretty annoyed and pretty frustrated and pretty restless because all I need to really hit that zone of like me and God in this sermon is some good music. And I'm so close. I've got my phone. But I can't just like play it loud. Like it's not going to work. So it it hits me that I just don't have my AirPods. So I, I guess I have to go back home. So frustrated promise is just walking, walking back, moping, head down, Uh, pretty frustrated, uttering all sorts of ridiculousness under his breath. And uh, I, like, my ears feel funny. So I take my hand and I do this. And guess where my AirPods were? Silly, it's sitting right in my ears. I had gone through this whole range of emotion Because my AirPods are in my ears. But how often is that the case with us? Where we're looking for something 
in the wrong place? What does that do to us spiritually when we look for rest in the wrong place? That's the very source of our restlessness. Can I break it down for us? Rest isn't going to be found in a nation or in a country or in a virus-free world. It's not going to be found in a better bank account statement. It's not going to be found in name it. That rest isn't situational or circumstantial. And when we seek these circumstances, maybe a better strategy, maybe a better 2022 list of goals, then I'll be at rest. You won't enter into lasting rest that way. It's not how it was designed. No, rest couldn't be found in the land for the Jewish people because it was never in the land. Rest is salvific. It's based off of salvation, off of something that only God can offer us, a restoration of what is broken. Rest is the releasing of our extraneous efforts to earn God's favor. It's God ridding us of having to live in fear of our sin, of our enemies, of anything. Rest is the state where the condition of our world doesn't distort our holiness or righteousness, but rather we are free to serve him and to know him. This is Zachariah's song. This is like the the pinnacle of what he's saying. Free from fear, what rest really looks like. So we get weary looking for rest in all the wrong places, like I was looking for my AirPods in all the wrong places. So I guess the logical question is, where where do you actually look? Where is the right place? Cool, you've listed nine places, promise, where I can't find rest. Give me one place where I can find it. Thank you for asking that question. I will give you one place. Rest is only found in what we celebrate in this Advent season. And that's why this passage is here. See, Advent is the anticipation, the longing, the waiting, and the receiving of Jesus Christ, born in a manger, in a most humble of positions. That's actually where we're going to find our rest. It's not going to be in the state of things. It's going to be in him. Rest would be a baby, a baby born in a manger. Rest would be Jesus who grew up and would say one of the most beautiful things in Scripture. He would say this, come to me. He's calling, come unto me, all of you who are weary, heavy laden, restless. Use whatever translation you want. If you got stuff, come to me, and I will give you rest. Not I will tell you where to go to get rest. I won't give you money that'll give you rest. I won't give you a more perfect land and that'll give you rest. No, I'll give you me. The idea is this. Rest can only be found in Jesus. And that's because rest is not a place. It's a person. Jesus won't point you somewhere to find your rest. No, he'll say, come follow me. If you've got stuff, that's okay. Come to me, all of you who are weary, all of you who are in chains, and I will give you rest. Rest without fear. Rest that allows you to serve him in holiness and in righteousness, free from fear. And wouldn't we love that? That's the reason Zachariah sings. That's the reason Jesus comes to earth. That's the reason we celebrate Advent. We, his people, celebrate the remembering of a God who keeps promises, His promise still stands. 
A God whose plan to save us is not just to save us from today and today's troubles, but has a longer, bigger picture, bigger than we think. Man, the worship set was right on, guys. Well done. Advent is a season calling us, those of us who are restless, those of us who are weary, to come and follow him because that's how we're going to find our rest. That's the only way we can live free from fear, free from the bondage that sin and that life can put on us. So here, here's my pitch. Here's the thing. I know we're tired. I'm tired. It's been a hard year for me too. I'm exhausted. A lot of us here at the Vine are actually weary. We're actually restless. It's, we can't make light of the challenges that the people in Hong Kong have faced in the past two years. People around the world are facing with this virus. And because of those challenges, it might seem like rest is impossible. It might seem like if rest exists, it might just be right out of my reach. And what we so desperately need is a kind of a rest that allows us to remember that God keeps his promise, a rest that then brings a confidence to us. What us weary people need is a rest that shows us the eternal, the big picture of what God is doing, even when we can't see it, even when our situation hasn't changed out before our eyes, what he's doing internally and eternally. A rest that will combat our fears, delivering us from the threat and the hold and the grip that our enemies, that our sin, that our shame, that our insecurities have on us and render their impact as ineffective against our soul. So maybe you're here today and you fall into that category. Maybe you would say my life feels like characterized by incessant fear. Maybe it's fear of the future, fear of this next wave of the virus, Fear of not being fully in control of your life. Fear of not getting the job that you wanted. Just name it. All of those impact us and take a toll on us. But the good news today is that in Jesus, we can be free from those fears. And he can show us how to live without those things distorting our view, without those things oppressing us without those things breaking us down from the inside. So if you're tired and you're weary, if you're broken, if you're hopeless, if you got stuff, that's okay. He doesn't say, only come to me if you're perfect. He says, come to me if you're tired. If you're weary, great, come to me. If you're restless, okay, come to me. If you've got a bunch of stuff, come to me. And in that coming to him, there's this beautiful exchange where God actually swaps some things. See, he takes your burden, he takes your shame, the things that are holding you, that are freezing you from being who you're meant to be, the fear that we can live in. He actually takes that. And in in place of that, he gives you something else. He gives you his rest. And that rest is what allows us to walk daily with him, It shows up in things like courage when we don't have it, strength when we feel weak, hope when all seems lost. All these fruits of the Spirit, self-control and patience and gentleness when things aren't gentle around us, that's what entering into his rest can do for us. When we exchange what we have for what he is, he allows these things to bud in us 
bringing us into a space where we can be full of rest, free from fear, and in wholeness. May this Advent season lead us into a place of deeper rest with Christ, born unto us so that we will know him and that we will know rest. Let's stand and we'll pray. God, your words are true. Your words are good and you, you, your words say that you keep your word. You keep your promise. So God, we just come before you today as people with various things on our heart, various things that impact who we are. And we come to a promise-keeping God knowing that if you did it then, if you kept your word then, you'll keep your word to us. God, we thank you for Advent. We thank you for Jesus coming and being with us. We thank you that your plan for our salvation isn't just for right now. God, thank you that you care about tomorrow as well. Thank you that your plan is well thought of. And God, we find ourselves in this space of restlessness when we seek after sometimes good things, but in the wrong places. God, some of us are tired looking for good things in the wrong places and not finding it. And I just pray, Lord, that your spirit will come and minister to us, will redirect our efforts, not to a thing, not to a location, not to a setting or a circumstance, Lord, but through your spirit, will you turn our eyes, shift our perspective, and allow us to follow you more closely. And God, we ask for your rest. We know that you know what it's been like. We know because you came and you have felt it all and you've walked in oppression and you've been there. And so God, from the sin that entangles us, we ask for your rest. For the personal deep insecurities that plague us from being who you call us to be, we ask for your rest. For the brokenness in our homes and in our families, relationships where things just aren't as they're meant to be, we ask for your spirit and for your rest. May your presence come. May your spirit work in us, Lord. And may you lead us to a place where we can live in that rest that you so freely give.